0: As I've said repeatedly, number one, we're not leaving here without a COVID package. It's not going to happen. We're going to stay here until we get a COVID package, no longer, no, long, no matter how long uh, it takes. We'll be here until we get a COVID package.
1: But we remain cautiously optimistic that substantial progress is underway, and we will not leave the Capitol until an agreement is reached to address the needs of the American people with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Those are the voices from December 16, 2020, of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Hakeem Jeffries, who is the House Democratic Caucus Chair, as they talk about Congress, which once again finds itself in a Christmas week wrangling over big-ticket legislation in a lame-duck session. This is C-SPAN's the Weekly and I'm Susan Swain. Robert X Browning, you've studied Congress throughout your academic career. Why does this Christmas week set of negotiations seem like déjà vu?
1: Well, because it is. You know, in the 24 in the 42 years since the beginning of the C-SPAN, that so we've been recording in the archives, there have been 15 of these so-called lame duck sessions, and one has occurred every election year since 1998.
2: This year, the issues, as we heard from the leaders, are emergency relief for COVID, which is described by reporters as one of the largest federal rescue bills in American history, packaged with a big appropriations bill called an omnibus. And there also may be continued action on the defense authorization legislation, which funds the military. Literally, we're talking about trillions of federal dollars at stake. How do these issues compare with other recent End of session stalemates?
1: Well, legislatively, lame ducks are generally about continuing resolutions for federal spending, or what we call omnibus spending bills, because the Congress couldn't pass the budget and they put it all together in one big bill. And then they combine it with another big ticket item, because the budget is controversial, the budget has to pass. So they tie the non the more controversial bills together for negotiating purposes because they can tie them to a must pass bill this year covid is the controversial bill with its issues of liability insurance and um uh, and state and local funding so they've tied that to the continuing resolution which funds the government for the rest of the year and into the next year
2: And of course, with COVID relief, it's all been about the dollars up to this point as well, and and what the size of the package is. You know, before we talk more about the whys of lame duck session negotiating, I'd like to tell our listeners more about who they're listening to. So tell us about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a professor of political science where I've been teaching at Purdue University since 1981, and then and studying congress that whole time and teaching about congress and in 1987 i founded the c-span video archives which is has 280,000 digital hours of public affairs video all recorded from c-span
2: and how many hours of that video is congressional video
1: well there's about a hundred thousand hours which interestingly is about 38 percent of the collection consists of house and senate proceedings and congressional hearings and Uh, even more remarkable is that every time a person speaks, we record that, and there are 2.8 million collective indexes of members of Congress, House and Senate members, speaking on the floor.
2: And a lot of data, which we'll talk about later on. But let's go back to the lame duck sessions and learn a little bit more about them. So what is a lame duck session?
1: Well, a lame duck session is the time after an election before the new Congress comes in. And they come back into session to clean up business and do what they weren't successful in doing before the election. So one aspect of a lame duck session, perhaps the most important one, is that the members who were not reelected or who were defeated, as we say, in election or didn't run for re-election, can still vote in the lame duck. And they are no longer responsible to the voters because they don't have to face the voters again.
2: So that helps politically, but philosophically and the whole question of democracy, there's a, there's a representational issue there.
1: Yes. Are they, are they accountable? Uh, because members, you could have had a significant election where Someone said, I don't want this kind of person uh, to be my representative. And then that person turns around and is still voting on the important issues of the day.
2: Historically, have these lame duck sessions always been part of congressional legislating?
1: Uh, not really. In 1933, there was the 20th Amendment to the Constitution, which changed the calendar. And it said that the House would come in and the Senate would come in on January 3rd, just two months after the election in odd numbered years. And that shortened the time between the election and the beginning of the next Congress. And since that time, the Congress has used that time period between the November election and the January 3rd um, convening of the new Congress to conduct urgent or unfinished business.
2: I'm curious about the term itself, lame duck. Where does it come from?
1: Now, for that one, I had to do a little bit of research. Uh, the uh, the expression lame duck originated in 18th century Britain, uh, had, referring to bankrupt businessmen who were like a game bird who were shot and was lame. And it referred then to the Congress was the first recorded use of it. It was in 1863 in the Congressional Globe, which was the official record of the Congress at that time. And the concept is really that of a politician whose successor has already been chosen and therefore is seen as lost their political power. On the other hand, lame-duck legislators are free to vote, just like any other member, and uh, that uh, so the leadership increasingly looks to them to pass controversial items because they have no political consequences for them.
2: So if lame duck sessions are becoming more frequent, which you told us at the outset, what else have you discovered about them?
1: Well, they're getting longer. They're continuing past, um, all right up to the holidays and sometimes past. And in the last four Congresses, three lame duck sessions have continued into the January, just minutes before the new Congress convenes at noon. So, altogether, lame ducks keep producing longer uh, sessions, later adjournments, and more legislative days as Congress uses this time to pass not just controversial legislation, but other legislation they haven't gotten to.
2: So, what's happening? Why do you think this is uh, such a frequent occurrence in the modern Congress?
1: Well, Congresses are more closely divided both within the Congress and between the bodies, partisan politics is sharper. Uh, It's more consequential. And as we'll find with the incoming 107th Congress, they're even more closely divided.
2: So we almost can predict there will be a lame duck at the end of the 117.
1: Uh, It's become a regular feature of the Congress.
2: We have a clip from Senator Mike Johans, who was a Nebraska Republican during a lame duck session in 2010, talking about the political dynamics of lame duck legislation. Let's listen.
3: In an interview on Friday, a senior Democrat senator openly discussed the plan to consider cap-and-trade in the lame-duck session. The headline could not be more clear. Democrats may take up broad climate legislation after the election. Why is that the plan, you might ask? Why couldn't the Senate advance this measure in the more than a year since the House barely passed it Well, I'll point back to another surprisingly candid interview. According to one Democrat senator, and I'm quoting, if it is after the election, it may well be that some members feel free and liberated, unquote. Let me read that again. If it's after the election, it may well be that some members are free and liberated, unquote.
2: Since you began archiving congressional video, a few lame-duck sessions have been particularly memorable in their legislative squabbling and the ultimate legislative achievements. You're going to tell us a few of those stories. Let's start with 1994.
1: 1994, a big issue was the GATT trade agreement. Trade agreements are very controversial because they even cross party lines. And, uh, Robert Byrd, who was the senior senator from West Virginia and former majority leader and head of the Appropriations Committee, didn't like this Congress dealing with this and said, essentially, let the new Congress deal with this.
2: Well, here is Robert Byrd talking about that sentiment of letting the new Congress deal with it.
0: The members of a new Congress, not the lame duck members of the old Congress, should have the opportunity to fully study the agreement and make their decisions with more attention to the details of this far-reaching agreement. People of this country are entitled to render a verdict on the judgment of lame-duck members as expressed by their votes on this matter. But those lame-duck members, those who will have retired or those who will have been defeated at the polls, and I say this with the highest respect for Indian, and all of those members, they will have had a free ride. They will not have to answer to the judgment bar of the people at the next uh, election.
2: In 2012, there was a debate over something called the fiscal cliff. Why did you pick out this particular lame duck session as an example?
1: Well, the fiscal cliff was... A sort of pressure the Congress put on itself to finish a budget by the end of the year and cut the budget, or they would go into something called sequestration, which would be across-the-board budget cuts. And Representative Langford, who who was from, at that time a representative from Oklahoma, uh, blames the Senate, which is kind of common for one body to blame the other to say we finished our work, but the Senate is lagging behind.
2: We'll listen to Representative Langford, now Senator of Oklahoma ironically because in this clip he's blaming the Senate for <laughs> the lame duck legislation.
3: Well in a few days we're going to have to resolve the fiscal cliff. Ironically enough, something that the House of Representatives passed last May. In April set out a tax plan in May set out a sequestration plan, passed it through the House, sent it through the Senate who said we will see you during the lame duck time period. We're in the lame duck now, and this has to be resolved. We have to solve the problem, but quite frankly, the first thing we need to do is be able to define what the problem even is. It seems that one group is talking about the real problem is the fiscal cliff, and the other group is talking about the real problem is the debt and the deficit. Well, what is the problem? The issue is we have $16.3 trillion in debt as a nation, $1 trillion of overspending or more each year for the last four years.
2: Perhaps the most memorable recent lame duck session was 2009 to 2010. Tell us that story.
3: Well, this
1: was when President Obama first term, he had a high priority for passing health care reform, now called Obamacare by most people. And the House had passed the bill in November And which would be uh, still in the lame duck session. And it was on the docket in the Senate. They debated 25 days straight, all the way up to New Year's, to Christmas Eve, I should say, all the way up to Christmas Eve. And after a late-night session, the final vote occurred at 7 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. I mean, you can't go any later than that. The senators wanted to get out of town. They wanted to be back with their families to celebrate Christmas, but they had to finish this bill. So that's probably the most memorable last-minute big-ticket legislation in a lame-duck session.
2: We're going to listen to just a little bit of the debate from the, uh, we'll call it by its colloquial name, Obamacare legislation in December of 2009.
4: Mr. President, the constitutional point of order I raised uh, because I'm con- concerned that the Health Reform Bill violates the Congress's enumerated powers under Article 1, Section 8, and the Fifth Amendment Takings Clause of the Constitution. Each one of us take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. We do not take an oath to reform health care. We don't take an oath to do anything else here but to defend the Constitution of these United States. Health care reform needs to fit within the Constitution. It limits the powers that we have, and the the Congress, the United States government, has never enacted anything that would regulate someone's inactivity. Anything we've ever done, somebody actually had to have an action before we could tax it. In this case, if you choose to not do something, in other words, if you don't choose health insurance, This bill will actually tax you. It will act as a tax. So, for the first time in the history of the United States,
0: this bill will do
4: something it has never, the federal government has never done before.
0: Senator from Montana.
4: Mr. President, um, our um, committee and the HELP committee, we've all given a lot of thought to provisions in this legislation. We also give a lot of thought to the uh, constitutionality of the provisions. Uh, how they work in a relationship between um, the power of c- congress uh, and states
2: dr browning this year in addition to the covid relief negotiations and the uh, spending bill there's another end of session issue and that is the parties on both sides are strategizing around president trump's possible veto of a $791 billion National Defense Authorization Act. It's the one that funds the Defense Department and includes a raise for our military members. The president hasn't yet announced whether or not he's going to veto it, but he keeps hinting at it through his press secretary and through Twitter. Reports are that there's discussion about a veto override that may not be scheduled until the very final hours of the 116th Congress on January 3rd, why would they wait that long? What's the strategy here?
1: Well, because the Senate will adjourn right before Christmas, to get out of town, and it leaves us, it could leave this veto override undone. I don't think they want to crowd the agenda because they're wanting to get this COVID bill agreement in the continuing resolution passed. So they either have to come back again, which senators don't want to do, or they have to wait until the, the very last minute, which Congress loves to wait until the very last minute, as Representative Hoyer was talking about earlier this week. And so they would wait until the morning of January 3rd when the 116th Congress meets just before the 117th new Congress convenes. So the existing senators, including the newly elected vice president, who's still a senator, would have to vote on the veto override. ride. This is really the latest I've ever seen a Congress act in an old session, just hours before the new session. And the lame duck members who have been defeated or retired would have to be voting on the override.
2: Is it uh, a strategy that has possible consequences? Could it backfire on them?
1: Uh, it could if if they don't have all the members present. I mean, if they're worried about members coming back, um uh, there are four senators who who retired. there are many more house members if they did the house vote that morning uh there would be uh they would have the risk that they wouldn't have enough
2: votes but of course they would pass both houses with a very very wide margin. It's one of the big examples of bipartisan legislation out of the one hundred and sixteenth congress well speaking uh,
1: except that representative McCarthy the Republican leader says that many members may change their vote when it comes to voting against their president.
2: So we will have yet another cliffhanger, possibly on the morning of January 3rd, a Sunday morning for the new Congress coming in, which in and of itself is an unusual thing.
1: Yes, of course, a veto override needs both chambers. And so if it failed in the House, it would never get to the Senate. So Uh, But if it passes the House as an override, then the Senate would have to take it up as well.
2: Well, speaking of the 116th, as we close our conversation here, you and the team at the C-SPAN archives do also collect, besides video, mountains of data about the Congress. And every year at the end of a session, you release statistics about the Congress. What kinds of statistics are you compiling about the 116th?
1: Well, as you sort of can tell from this interview, that we do collect lots of data It goes into the C-SPAN video library and a section called Congress, and uh, you can see much of the data that we talk about for yourself. Uh, The year is particularly interesting because of the COVID factor. We found that with COVID there have been fewer legislative days, uh, less legislation passed, and because of the House proxy voting, the average votes have gone up from 20 minutes a vote Usually they say 15-minute vote, and it averages about 20 minutes, to 48 minutes, which means a lot of legislative time has been taken up in voting rather than debate over legislation. In, in the Senate, we find that the Senate has spent much of its time on the president's judicial nominations and uh, are not allowing much legislation or amendments in the Senate. In fact, overall, the number of bills passed in the 116th Congress is down significantly. It's as low as 88 bills in 2020 from a high of 329 just two years ago for a comparable session.
2: Well, it is hard to consider COVID session as comparable with much of anything. So the statistics are going to be standouts for sure this year. You and I are talking on the Thursday afternoon about one week before Christmas itself, and uh, all points uh, are uh, all bets are pointing rather to a full weekend session of continued negotiation over these big ticket items in this lame duck session. Thank you, Dr. Robert X. Browning, Purdue University, and the C SPAN Video Archives Director for helping us understand why it is that Congress tends to leave so much of these big negotiations until the very last minute.
1: Thank you, Susan.